Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. This episode is brought to you by Charles Stanley Wealth Managers. Charles Stanley is committed to providing financial peace of mind through personalized financial planning and expert investment management. To find out more, visit www.charles-stanley.co.uk. Investment involves risk. Hello and welcome back to the Unheard Club podcast. I'm Florence Reed. Today I was joined by investigative journalist Lee Fong, formerly of The Intercept, now from Substack, where he investigates controversial topics from the Black Lives Matter movement all the way through to Pfizer, which was what we were speaking about today. We looked into Pfizer's donation history across the pandemic and asked exactly why they might have given so much money to various cultural influencers, including, perhaps most interestingly, civil rights organisations in Southern American states. I spoke to Lee about the various reasons that this might be, the increased hysteria or perhaps paranoia across the years of the pandemic, the right and wrong reasons for this, and how exactly big corporate interests might be swaying the culture when it comes to vaccine mandates. It was a fascinating conversation, one I really hope you enjoy. Thanks to Lee for coming on. To you for listening, this is Unheard. Welcome to London, Lee. Thank you so much for having me. So I was really interested in getting you up here into the studio because you've written a big report about Pfizer, which I feel like flew under the radar in many ways and actually is something really significant that looking back over the COVID years might tell us a bit more than we think about what interests, corporate interests in particular, were, were guiding a lot of the public policy during that time. I've got here a list of Pfizer's charitable donations, which is what the report really sinks its teeth into, which we'll get to in a second. But first, I just wanted to ask you about vaccine mandates, as I said there in my introduction. Could you just, for our uninitiated audience, or perhaps our UK or rest world audience, tell us a little bit about what happened in America across the COVID pandemic when it came to vaccine mandates? Well, back in 2021, as the vaccines were being rolled out in the United States, there were a number of mandates um, various institutions, major universities, corporations instituted their own internal mandates. Uh, cities like where I'm from in San Francisco had a mandate, uh, New York, uh, various states. And then most controversially, um, the federal government uh, in the fall of 2021 uh, rolled out uh, their mandate for essentially every employer with over 100 employees. And e although each of these mandates differed in some of their particular rules, uh, they generally stated that um, if you did not receive and take the uh, COVID vaccine, um, you would be dismissed from your job. There were some, you know, carve outs for at least for the federal government mandate. Um, it, you could be tested, you know, once a week or multiple times a week. So you have to come in and test multiple times to show that, you know, you, you weren't infected with the vaccine. And these mandates 
very controversial at the time, still very controversial. Uh, they led to thousands of people being fired and dismissed from their jobs. Um, they did not generally have any exceptions for natural immunity from prior infection. Uh, so folks who, especially essential workers who you know, were on the front lines of this crisis, many of them were the first to be infected, especially in the transportation industry. Um, they, a lot of those workers were protesting these mandates because they said, look, we have natural immunity. Um, we, sh we shouldn't be required uh, to receive this shot uh, to have a job and put food on the table. Um, I, I was sympathetic to that. I'm vaccinated, but I, you know, I, I feel like that was a very reasonable argument at the time. And you look back at these debates that were very fraught, you know, um, at least in the U.S. media, uh, and I know around the world, uh, you were kind of branded as anti-science or pro-science, whether you agreed with the mandates or not. They were not up for debate. Um, you were branded as dangerous for society. Uh, if you criticize these mandates, um, a dangerous right winger. Um, you know, this, this was a controversial policy at the time, and it was sold also uh, by the Biden administration, by Joe Biden himself, from his, our CDC um, uh, director, uh, many of the kind of top public health officials, claiming that the mandate was necessary because if you received uh, the vaccine, you would not um, be infected with COVID, you would not spread COVID. Uh, at the time, there was no evidence to show that was the case. There were no studies that showed that the vaccine uh, ended transmission. And we now definitely know that uh, the vaccine did not end transmission. V very uh, decent research showing that for vulnerable uh, populations, uh, the vaccine did was very uh, efficient in reducing um, more severe symptoms. But in terms of transmission risk, um, the, the evidence wasn't there. So, you know, these mandates were rolled out through, throughout the summer and fall of 2021 very controversial, reshaped tens of not hundreds of thousands of lives. And I, I, I wrote this story uh, recently for my Substack, just kind of like looking in the rearview mirror and looking at some of the interest groups and pharmaceutical interests that seem to have a, a role in, in shaping this controversial policy. Yeah, of course, there is good profit margins to be made and also uh, public health interests involved here. It's quite complicated. It becomes quite an opaque issue because it's hard to tell the difference often or to separate those two motivations. I suppose here when we're talking specifically about Pfizer, there is a very clear reason why Pfizer might be supportive of vaccine mandates. If you mandate a product, if you're Coca-Cola and you say every child in America must drink one can of Coca-Cola at lunch every day for the rest of their school lives, well, it's quite good for the profits as well. So you can see here the motivation motivations might be quite complex behind it. But of course, as you say there, there was a kind of moral element which has confused the whole thing about whether or not it was morally virtuous to be vaccinated and whether that was indeed, as Joe Biden suggested, a kind of 100% effective transmission stop. And that, of course, as you say, has come into grave question. I think the Coca-Cola example is an interesting one. You know, um, you know, for any major corporation attempting to sell their product, you know, one aspect, of course, is the price, but the other is a kind of a moral argument. What, what does it mean to you? How, how does it kind of sync with public policy? How, how do you as a consumer, as a patient, as a citizen, interact with this product? And we really haven't seen a parallel to this in modern American history. I mean, this is um, the Pfizer vaccine, which was partnered with the uh, German company BioNTech. Um, this was the most lucrative pharmaceutical product in human history. Um, there, there is no parallel. And f while Pfizer did not publicly comment on the mandate, I think they understood the 
public relations risk of uh, endorsing a government mandate requiring the administration and purchase of their product, um, they seem to have a role in shaping this uh, uh, from the, the outside, from uh, various community organizations, uh, lobbying groups, and uh, healthcare, uh, civil rights, and consumer organizations that did their lobbying on their behalf. And, and that gets to my story that uh, you referenced at the beginning of your show. So let's have a look into some of these lobbying groups and influential kind of campaigners who were funded in some way or given grants by Pfizer. Of course, Pfizer has to release this funding information as part of their open policy of reporting, though, of course, it doesn't mean that the people who've received those donations necessarily have to be totally transparent about what they've received, which is something that we'll come on to in a moment. Well, and that's actually interesting, too, because, you know, in Europe, I know the laws are very different in, than in the U.S., and there's a higher degree of, of scrutiny in terms of pharmaceutical payments to outside physicians, organizations, and community groups. In the U.S., it's a patchwork of, of rules and regulations. Pfizer, uh, over 10 years ago, was um, prosecuted by our Justice Department for engaging in illegal uh, off-label promotion of their drugs, you know, encouraging doctors to prescribe their drugs where there was no kind of uh, regulatory authority. And as part of a settlement from this multi-billion dollar case, uh, Pfizer was required to engage in uh, additional disclosure. So you know, they've gotten caught in very similar kind of underhanded lobbying tactics in the past. And because of those uh, settlements they paid for other drugs, uh, we have a, a higher degree of disclosure for just this company. Yeah, though the disclosure isn't being looked at by everyone is the thing. It's very easy to bury this in the back end of Pfizer's uh, incredibly complex website, which has lots of rabbit holes that you can go down and you have actually taken a look. So when you do take a look, some of the um, examples are predictable, I suppose. We've got here the American Lung Association, who received almost $400,000 from Pfizer for a pneumonia awareness campaign. Of course, pneumonia being a kind of severe side effect of, of coronavirus, that would make sense that they want to raise awareness of that severe side effect to promote the cure or the, the vaccine that they have offered. Then you get to something like the American Academy of Pediatrics, I'm reading here, um, was given $200,000 for something called building a system of care to improve patient compliance. We're talking there about childhood vaccination. Anyone who's slightly conspiratorially minded now will be have bells ringing, of course, because there is this sense that they are pushing um, a public trust of vaccines that have come to be less and less trusted over the course of the pandemic. We began with these sweeping statements by Joe Biden about their total efficacy, and we seem to have moved in a kind of downward trajectory from there in terms of uh, public trust and, and a sense of efficacy in general. Then you get onto this more cultural side of things, which I suppose is something I'd love to speak more to you about. We've got the National Black Nurses Association, who have been targeted for vaccine confidence PSAs. So public announcements to try and encourage black nurses to have higher confidence in giving, uh, applying the vaccine to probably majority black communities. Now, this brings us on to your story of Chicago, in which uh, the Chicago Urban League was dispelling fears publicly about vaccination and privately receiving funding from Pfizer. Can you tell me more about that specific example? Yeah, this was a, a big aspect of the debate in the U.S. is, you know, as, as lots of cultural and political phenomenons, um, where there's a big discussion about racial disparity, that um, in the rollout of these vaccines, some of the most, uh, the communities that had, had the highest levels of vaccine hesitancy were in the African-American communities, especially working class 
African-American communities across the country, and particularly in Chicago. Chicago had a municipal um, COVID mandate, and this was part of the discussion in summer 2021. Um, if you roll out this mandate requiring employers and, and you know, city jobs and, and private sector jobs to force the vaccine, will that harm disproportionately African-American communities that are declining to take the shot? Um, as this discussion was happening, the Chicago Urban League, this is a very storied civil rights organization. I believe it's over 120 or 130 years old, um, really on the vanguard of various uh, civil rights campaigns over the years. Uh, their president appeared on, on local television saying, look, um, we, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but we need to, uh, even though there will be you know, a, a, a disparate impact, this is worth it um, to have the, the mandate. Uh, during that discussion and similar discussions in Chicago media, no disclosure that her organization, uh, just prior to these, these, this debate that year, received a special $100,000 uh, donation from Pfizer. Um, notably, the Chicago Urban League does a very good job in disclosing almost every single corporate uh, donation to their website except Pfizer. Um, they did decline to comment. I, I reached out to them many times. And, you know, if, if there was no kind of... Um, you know, it, you know as, as any kind of nonprofit or NGO group, you have to fundraise from various stakeholders and, and you know, uh, different donors. I understand that. But uh, if there's no kind of public explanation for this, I think it, it kind of undermines the trust in these various institutions. Um, it, are they acting as a representative of the community? Are they working towards the kind of broad African-American community in Chicago? Or are they acting as a corporate lobbyist, as, as, as a as a an organization with credibility, with a, a voice in the media that's acting in the interests of their donors. I think that, that's a reasonable de debate to be having. It, it certainly applies to many other kind of policy issues in the United States, but here I think is a um, particularly controversial one. And what we haven't touched on here yet is the very reasonable medical mistrust that those African-American communities in places like Chicago may well have because of histories of medical malpractice against black people in, in the States. We you know we can think about Alabama in the 30s. There's been quite a few polls done on this, and this has not changed in, in recent years. But um, the most unpopular industries in America are oil companies, banks, and pharmaceutical companies. Um, the pharma executives and PR kind of representatives understand this fact, and so when they engage in controversial, highly emotionally charged public policy debates, they're looking to kind of parry any potential attack and uh, harness various kind of cultural and, and community trends in the United States to their benefit. In America is unique also in the sense that we're one of the only Western countries, I think one of the only industrialized countries that does not have a kind of broad uh, government mechanism to negotiate the price of pharmaceuticals that we pay uh, in the private sector or for retirees. This has been a big a source of debate uh, in the United States for a very long time. Um, where I live in California, uh, there was an, a measure in 2016, kind of a, a yes or no referendum, to allow the state to engage in some more kind of price-setting regulations for uh, the state kind of welfare program, state health care program, um, um, Medicaid is what it's called. And uh, pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical companies saw this. Uh, were terrified. Uh, they mobilized a massive campaign uh, in California to defeat this measure. They were successful. 
But if you look at the advertisements that they ran, they were not saying, hey, look, I'm AstraZeneca, I'm, I'm Pfizer, and I oppose this message. Uh, they funded gay rights groups, Asian American groups, African American groups. Uh, you know, in San Francisco, the LGBT Harvey Milk Center, you know, for the gay rights icon. It does seem often that it's a kind of progressive cause that they h hook on to. And I guess, I guess the question is why? Why is it? Well, that that's because this is California. You know, <laughs> this is a state that voted overwhelmingly would that, it, that year for Hillary would Clinton. Would it be the and National and Rifle Association in Texas? I mean, this is the question. It does seem more likely that they hook on to these progressive um, kind of ideas. I think maybe because it's about a moral signaling about the uh, alignment of their product, in this case, the moral virtue of getting vaccinated, being I, alongside I think that's right. I mean, the, being anti-racist, pro-gay, whatever it is. I think it's both. It's multifaceted because in these kind of election, you know, scenarios, you know, you just want to get to 51%. You want to win. And in a state like California, that's highly democratic, the social justice identity politics has most, the most cachet that's going to work. But actually in this campaign, you know, California's big diverse state in the Central Valley and some parts of Southern California that are quite conservative, uh, the pharmaceutical companies funded veterans organizations to endorse their position. So, you know, they had a kind of a... They swing a, both ways. Yeah, yeah, whatever worked, really, you know. So uh, it's, it's, they're, not, they're not ideologically attached to you know, social justice causes, they're, they have a fiduciary duty to serve their shareholders. And to serve their shareholders means keeping drug prices high, so they're going to do whatever works. Now, in terms of kind of shaping the larger public debate, especially around these vaccines, yeah, attaching to a moral cause, you know, funding these pediatric societies that then hired their lobbyists, that then pushed for, you know, ch childhood vaccine mandates, you know, that's that's one part of it. But then also just kind of improving their reputation by attaching themselves to the arts, uh, to other kind of do-gooder, laudable causes. That's also good for business. We talk there about the fiduciary responsibility, but there is a social and health response, public health responsibility that if you look at the scientists who work on the lower levels of these companies, who are often incredibly intelligent people from Harvard and Yale and Cambridge, they are... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Many of them saying that they are just trying to do what's best for humanity, that they are creating a, a product in a, in, a, in a childhood vaccine, for example, that's something that will save hopefully millions, if not billions of lives, and that actually theirs is just a moral duty and the fiduciary responsibility comes from above. It's a kind of superstructure that's unfortunate. It's a side effect of living under capitalism, but it's just how things work. They need the funding to do the research to get the best product. Pharmaceutical money um, influences and affects many spheres of American life. And academia is a big one. Um, you know, I, there are academics that focus their entire lives on solving the greatest problems uh, in human history. And, you know, so finding a cure for cancer and, you know, coming up with new medicines every day. And it, what they do is, is wonderful and important work. And many of them do receive, um, you know, a mix of public and private financing, including uh, far, pharma money at times to do this type of important research work. I, 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 for a lot of these debates, you, I think just in terms of the public interest and uh, how we evaluate this work, it's important to have disclosure. You know, we're, we talked about the previous example in Chicago. I think the, the greatest ill there is the lack of disclosure that no one, uh, here we are in 2023. We don't find out about this money until now. When this, when, years after people were fired from their jobs that, you know, these, these policies were enacted, for the academics working in the sphere, um, you know, a greater level of disclosure is important. Um, were there whistleblowers? Have you found people who were willing to talk to you about this from inside the organization, or is that just totally stumped? Um For this story, no, but, you know, I've written many pharmaceutical stories, and, you know, there's a lot of corruption in the United States uh, around these issues. Uh, you know, I mean, and this goes on today. I was just looking at my phone uh, this morning, and, you know, Joe Biden uh, enacted kind of the fair, we were talking about uh, price regulations nationally, the very first attempt, and it only applies to the top 10 most expensive uh, pharmaceuticals in the country, but that's going to be enacted uh, later this year. It's one of his kind of crowning accomplishments. Um, the pharmaceutical industry filed a lawsuit against this law. Uh, a few companies, uh, Bristol, Bristol Myers Squibb and, and some others, uh, are leading the charge, but um, also, lots of patient organizations, because patient organizations, again, have more credibility with the public. Um, they receive millions of these, these patient organizations that are engaged in this litigation. They receive millions of dollars from the pharmaceutical industry. Um, it, it, it's, a, it's a huge part of just how D.C. works. So if, you, if you've gone to Washington, D.C., you see pharmaceutical advertisements all over the city. They're not actually selling a particular medicine. They're just trying to improve the reputation to shape the regulatory and political atmosphere. Here we have a question of morality, which is if these vaccines were taken by millions of Americans under a certain degree of misle misleading information coming from the government and then funded by companies like Pfizer, how much can we say that it was informed consent? Informed consent is this phrase that we get 
a lot when it comes to the question of vaccine mandates. How informed or misinformed do you think the consent was that people were making when, when they took the vaccine under these conditions? That's a great question. <laughs> I don't know if I'm qualified to answer that, but that, I mean, I, I would love a, just a thoughtful debate, a public debate about this. Um, you know, you, you turn on Fox News or MSNBC or any of the kind of cable networks we have in the United States, and it's, you know, it's, it's a slugfest of finger pointing and name calling, um, kind of just taking apart the science, the motivations, uh, a, a clear-eyed view of, of the lobbying, the motivations of the pharmaceutical companies, but, you know, uh, still kind of appreciating the, the, the great achievements of, you know, producing the vaccines in, in, in record time is, is, is also an important accomplishment. I, I feel like there just isn't a balanced debate on any of these issues. You know, you, you kind of have extremists in different camps, you know, demanding that we, generally on the left, that we accept these mandates and uh, not debate them or debate the science or discuss the efficacy at all. And on the far right, um, sometimes drifting towards conspiracy theory or exaggerating the adverse effects of the, the vaccine. I mean, it's just, uh, it's very fraught. And uh, it leads, I think, to less trust on both sides for uh, the next kind of um, medical or, you know, uh, pandemic uh, emergency where w we might be presented with these issues again. Just in the last few weeks, we've had Joe Rogan, who's attempting to kind of broker some sort of debate between Peter Hotez, who's a, who's a scientist, a kind of vaccine scientist, and, and RFK Jr., a presidential candidate who has got some, to say the least, controversial views on vaccines. We've had him on this very channel. But that has seemed impossible that there are two entrenched sides, as you say, who are so deep in the quagmire of this question that they will shout over the wall at each other that to give any platform to someone who is on the other side is to legitimise their perspective and therefore to undermine the entire rational discussion. How do we actually get through this? How are we going to move through this if we can actually not have a situation where two people with opposing views on vaccines sit in the same room? Well, I think underlying all of these debates um, is that we at least sometimes get to the science in some public forums, but almost everywhere across American media, we don't talk about the corporate power of, of Pfizer and other pharmaceutical companies. And, you know, I, I think RFK has said some, some claims around vaccines and, and pharmaceuticals that are, uh, you know, dubious and uh, I'm skeptical of, uh, other, but he makes other uh, comments that you just don't hear in the public sphere that do ring true, which is that Pfizer and other companies uh, spend hundreds of millions of dollars on television advertisements. Um, that probably shapes the way we talk about corporate power and pharmaceutical companies on the major American media outlets. Uh, even for the congressional Republicans who are talking all the time about investigating the mandates, investigating uh, the CDC, investigating uh, the Biden administration lies about vaccine and, and COVID policy, what they're not doing is subpoenaing the, the pharmaceutical companies because Republicans, uh, you know, they, they've, uh, there are certainly more kind of realignment Republicans that are certainly more populist, but it's still a party that's largely funded by big business, that's largely funded by pharmaceutical companies. They're asking all the questions about COVID policy except the corporate power questions. Well, fair enough, perhaps, if you're a, uh, a Democrat, you might th think, OK, I'm going to shy away from starting some massive inquiry into a company that it turns out might have given millions of dollars to my campaign. But what about the New York Times? What about these major investigative houses that should be, in some sense, independent? Why does it 
land with you on your Substack to be looking into Pfizer's back channels when in actual fact there are these huge organisations claiming to be doing effective investigative journalism. Where is it on the front page of the New York Times? That's a great question. You know, I'm informed by you know, my understanding of these issues from historical reading of the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, Financial Times, other media outlets on pharma's influence over the years. I mean, this is not new. I mean, th these strategies are, are more interesting because the mandates are so unprecedented. But these lobbying tactics, you know, using civil rights organizations, medical organizations, patient organizations to kind of manufacture consent for various pharmaceutical policies, this is an old strategy. This is something that's been reported in the New York Times in previous debates. Why they don't take on this issue now, I mean, I, I don't have a direct answer for that. I don't have a causation here, but it's a, you know, the New York Times and other media outlets have shifted away from more balanced journalism towards a little bit more of a partisan edge. You know, um, it's a, the New York Times in particular made a huge fortune shifting to a subscription-based model uh, with a more left-leaning Democratic Party base. Uh, and, you know, on, on a number of coverage areas, there are still, you know, dozens and dozens of incredible journalists and editors there. Um, I don't want to knock their journalistic abilities at all. But the coverage has shifted over the years. It's become a slightly more partisan newspaper. And because COVID and vaccines have become this polarized issue, for any Democratic-leaning organization, left-leaning organization, any criticism of uh, mandate policy or vaccine policy makes you immediately branded as, you know, anti-science or a threat to uh, human health, uh, you know, threat to health. So, you know, I, I don't know, but uh, why they're not doing the, this type of reporting that they have done in the past in previous debates, but they certainly aren't. Perhaps this will be something that comes down the line. Maybe the reporting is, is yet to come. We can, we can be hopeful about that. But during the time of COVID itself, I suppose the answer someone might give you from that newsroom is, look, it was a time of crisis. We were in a time of crisis where actually we had to batten down the hatches and everyone had to be on brand, on message, because, of course, if we had any doubt sown about someone like Pfizer, then we might have mass vaccine refusal, which could have ended in disaster. So what would you say to them? That's not journalism. You know, your job isn't to look around the room and nod along with everyone else. Your job as a journalist, even if it's unpopular, is to pursue the truth, uh, to, you know, take... Take the evidence, the facts, uh, wherever they guide you, to question authority, to question public policy. Um, you know, I think a lot of journalists are deathly ill, are deathly terrified of how their reporting will be used by the wrong people. You know, um, that's just not not a good way to go about life. That's not a good way to go about um, media. You know, I, I have trust in the reader. You know, of course, there are going to be charlatans and extremists that take your reporting and weaponize it for maybe an underhanded purpose. But the kind of broad New York Times or other reader, um, they can, if, if it's well-presented journalism, if it's fair, if it's fact-based, if it's put in context, uh, they'll use it responsibly. And we'll have better policy, I think, as a result. But yeah, I, I think it, 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 the kind of um, uh, mindset that you're describing is exactly what happened during the pandemic. You know, what if this is used by the wrong people? This leads to vaccine hesitancy. What if this helps the Republicans? What if this helps, you know, the Trumpers? I mean, that's, you know, and I've, I've worked in left-leaning newsrooms uh, for a very long time. You know, I'm now solo on Substack for the last two months. And 
uh, you know, that's a, that's a sentiment that people obsessed over every day on every story, and it's very unhealthy. COVID seemed to become a real perfect storm for this, though, in particular. And I do wonder if downstream of all of this growing mistrust, we will find ourselves in a situation where we do have, for example, a presidential election that's so dominated by the memories of this time and the what people are willing to say and not to say. I spoke earlier about RFK Jr., one of the presidential candidates now polling at over 20% in the Democratic primary. I suppose a lot of his appeal to many people is that they feel he is saying things that other people are not allowed to say or their interests won't allow them to speak out about. So do you think the future of American politics is going to be in some way written by what's happened over the last few years? Absolutely. I mean, just as the financial crisis in 2008 hung over the heads of American politics for perhaps a decade or more. I mean, for me, I think that's largely the reason we had uh, elections like Brexit, like Trump, where, you know, after that, we, after that kind of crisis where it um, exacerbated income inequality, it led to this mistrust of major regulatory bodies of, you know, justice departments that didn't seem to prosecute the banks at the, in the same way that they prosecuted uh, ordinary people. There's this kind of two-sided sense of justice. There was a demand for some kind of sweeping outside voice to smash the system to kind of, you know, whether that was ever achieved with Brexit or Trump, that's a different, de that's a different debate. But that, I think, provided the underpinning for these momentous elections. And just as the 2008 financial crisis loomed over the events over the following 10 years, I think COVID, I think the, you know, the, the, the uprising around George Floyd, um, it's, it's remade America in many ways, um, made people question uh, and, and wonder about, uh, you know, uh, the CDC and other uh, public health bodies, about scientists and, and their role in, in shaping the debate around pharmaceutical companies. So we've had this complete realignment where the Democratic Party uh, once championed itself as the, the big, biggest critics of Big Pharma, and now that they're the, the biggest champions on, on Capitol Hill and, and other public forums. Um, and for the average voter, um, the, 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 the independents, the, the kind of swing voter, um, I think they're, they're uncomfortable with all this. And so they're open-minded to any kind of outside voice that's willing to kind of call into question a lot of these contradictions. Do you think there's a kind of horseshoe situation that we might get into where anti-corporatism, anti-big pharma might become something that crosses over the aisle left and right and that actually we're entering into a new kind of politics that is either in the pocket of or outside of these kind of corporate interests? Oh, absolutely. We're already seeing that in so many different ways. I've covered politics for the last 16 years. I've never seen um, congressional Republicans uh, demanding clawbacks of banker bonuses. That's, that's a big Republican bill now. Um, for these, you know, We've had a number of medium-sized bank failures earlier this year in the United States. There are Republican bills to claw back those bank bonuses. There are Republican efforts to investigate the FBI that's m more aggressive than anything I've seen from a liberal that you know, the left the left is, have complained bitterly and, and I think accurately about the FBI for as, you know, as long <laughs> as I've been an adult, but I've never seen a polit politician so aggressive as the Republicans who are now going after FBI abuses. Um, big tech uh, has been a problem for a very long time. And where, I'm, where I live in California, it's, it's a lot of Republicans joining with um, independent-minded Democrats in proposing some of the most thoughtful uh, regulations and proposals to um, counter the, the power of, of big tech. Um, this is unprecedented. You know, it's, it's certainly not something uh, that you saw 10 years ago under the Obama years. Um, it, there was inklings of this in the beginning of, of the Trump years, but 
it's, it's very new. There's been a tainting of the whole of science, it feels, almost to the point where there are some people who at the beginning of the pandemic might have been perfectly trusting of their doctor when they would go and see them, who now won't be. Uh, what effect is that going to have on, on American life? Well, look, I mean, there's, there's been a study done that shows that even the pens and other kind of free goodies that are given to doctors shape their prescribing habits. Um, it's, it's astounding. And of course, these free golf trips and these paid speeches and other goodies do too. And look, that's been a problem for so many years in, in America. Hopefully, with this kind of opening of mistrust, it leads to a better form of ethics. Um, a better form of medicine, new institutions or reformulated institutions that actually serve the public interest, not the bottom line of pharmaceutical companies. Um, how this goes, I, I don't know. <laughs> um, it is dangerous that um, I, I can see the potential harms of people not believing in any institution, any kind of you know, medical or, or government entity, and getting lost in online conspiracy theories. That's a danger too. But the opening here is for uh, real reform. You know, there's been Every politician talks about reforming um, big pharma and, and, and medicine. Very few actually accomplish it. Uh, the, the Biden regulation, the legislation that I, I referenced earlier on, on capping the drug prices of the top 10 most expensive Medicare drugs that was passed last year, still pretty minor. We still have a lot of problems in terms of big pharma uh, in America. We've got a lot of dis problems with disclosure and corruption and influence peddling. Um, let's hope that this, this window leads to an era of reform. but. It's hard to predict. Li Feng, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. That was Li Feng, former journalist at The Intercept, talking corporate interests that shape public policy. Pfizer's sponsoring of the vaccine mandates in particular and informed consent, or perhaps psychological coercion, depending on how you think about it. We talk there about public trust in science post-pandemic and exactly what will happen to politics in the wake of this era. Thanks to him for coming on, to you for watching. This was Unheard.